Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Happy Labor Day to our American and Canadian listeners. L-A-B-O-R, if you're south of the border, if you're north, L-A-B-O-U-R. That's what the day used to be about, putting the U in labor. You can't spell labor without you, and without you and your labor, this planet would be a primitive state of nature, red in tooth and claw. Consider the words of Peter J. Maguire, General Secretary of the Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners, proposing the very first Labor Day in 1882. The new day would be an occasion, he said, to honor those who from rude nature have delved and carved all the grandeur we behold. What a crazy, all the grandeur we behold comes from man and his work. What fossil fuel is that guy inhaling? Today, rude nature is the state we aspire to, and you can't even delve and carve a keystone pipeline underneath it out of sight. Labour itself, in the sense Mr. Maguire used the term, is morally dubious among our elites and down at the other end increasingly conditional. Since March 2020, March 2020, uh, that's a long time ago now. Uh, But since March 2020, hundreds of millions of freeborn citizens around the world have meekly accepted that they can labour only upon the say-so of the state, which has the right to fine them and indeed jail them if they do not comply with arbitrary and constantly shifting provisions, such as examining the health records of diners in your restaurant. The labour markets I know best, my own state of New Hampshire and its neighbour Vermont across the Connecticut River, are two of the least afflicted by lockdown, except, except that many thousands of persons in these here hills have never returned to work. They did low-paying service jobs and they discovered that they didn't miss them when the government was offering you a modest stipend to stay home and watch Netflix or do meth or however you prefer to pass the time. So we have a tight labour market. The gas station and convenience store closes at 5 p.m., Because there are no staff available for an evening shift, the owner of the sandwich joint takes a week's vacation and closes down the place because there are no staff to run it in his absence. Uh, For some, labor is now conducted via Zoom. For others, labor has vanished more totally. Two decades ago, I wrote in the National Post of Canada that the transformation of Labor Day from a celebration of workers' solidarity to a cookout is the perfect precy of the history of Anglo-American capitalism. The state has now taken it to the next level. The cookout is either forbidden or regulated by government with respect to attendance, medical protocols and dress codes. Your freedom of movement is tightly circumscribed, reduced in parts of Australia to a limited list of government-permitted reasons to leave the house and then only within your five-kilometre bubble. What comes after the Labor Day cookout? The net effect of COVID has been a massive transfer of the economy from small local businesses to Amazon and Apple, and the recategorization of almost all mom-and-pop enterprises as non-essential. And almost all workers 
as non-essential. Labor Day is an appropriate occasion on which to reflect upon the dignity of work and self-sufficiency and its indispensability to a civilized society. There may be something down the pike that can replace it, but on the evidence so far, welfare, minimum wage service jobs, lockdown, looting, heroin and meth aren't it. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Labor Day weekend in North America. There are a lot of poems that attempt to convey the soul-crushing, back-breaking burden of labour. But as fewer and fewer of us do that kind of work, and in fact, since the dawn of the COVID, millions and millions of us have been prevented from doing any kind of sustained work, uh, I thought I'd pick something that considers the subject more philosophically. Indeed, in this poem, labour is the answer to the most fundamental question. Why are we here? It's by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, uh, back before she married Robert Browning. And in fact, this was one of the poems in a collection by Elizabeth that enthralled Browning and persuaded him to send her a fan letter, as a result of which they met and fell in love and wed. God did anoint thee, says Elizabeth Barrett, to wrestle not terrain, by which one understands not just that man is here to work, but also to struggle at his work, to wrestle. And whether you agree with that or not, historically we have understood that work is what gives life dignity and purpose. And in the world we are moving into very rapidly, in which there will be no work, and thus not a lot of dignity or purpose, there will also be no struggle as the titans of Apple and Amazon are keen that the formerly working class should receive a living wage and thus be able to divert themselves with all the shiny new toys Apple and Amazon will make for us. And uh, if you can't afford Apple and Amazon, there's always heroin and opioids. The future, Mrs. Browning took a different view, first published in December 1842 in Graham's magazine by Elizabeth Barrett Barrett, as then was, a sonnet on work. What are we set on earth for? Say, to toil, nor seek to leave thy tending of the vines for all the heat of the day till it declines, and death's mild curfew shall from work assoil. God did anoint thee with his odorous oil to wrestle, not to reign, and he assigns all thy tears over like pure crystallines for younger fellow workers of the soil to wear for amulets. So others shall take patience, labour, to their heart and hand, from thy hand and thy heart and thy brave chair. And God's grace fructify through thee to all. The least flower with a brimming cup may stand and share its dewdrop with another near. A poem from me to you by Elizabeth Barrett Browning called Simply Work. The Barrett family had a lot of plantation income from Jamaica, uh, but on the other hand, Elizabeth herself was an ardent and outspoken abolitionist all her life. Whether that will suffice when the mob comes to cancel her 
we shall see. And if you were in the mood for something a little more sweating and straining, uh, we shall have that for you upcoming in our Song of the Week. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. No parades in New York, peace breaks out between America and Canada, and is it time for bathing beauties to unionize? It's Labor Day 1921. A hundred years from today. Those larger-than-life photoplay actors work harder than many of us when it comes to making those exciting stories that grip us at the flickers. So they can perhaps be forgiven for partying harder than mere earthbound mortals on their days off. For Labor Day, the comedian Fatty Arbuckle, one of the highest paid entertainers in America, had procured a large three-bedroom suite for a party at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco. The question that most excited the press was whether his glamorous leading lady Mabel Norman would attend the party. In the event, other women were seen arriving at the St. Francis and there are now dark rumours circulating in San Francisco that something terrible has befallen one of them at the hotel. We will stay on top of this story for you. I'm a wedding, decking in head, decking in cologne, oh, that's why they call me. Jobs hard to find. Many American and Canadian workers are making do with second-hand hats, second-hand pearls, second-hand clothes. So the Labor Day parades across the continent are much diminished this year and included many second-hand displays on the floats, if there were any floats to be had. In New York City, for the first time in many years, there was no parade at all. John Sullivan President of the Central Trades and Labour Council said that the council and other bodies had decided to conserve their very limited funds in light of the industrial situation. In Toronto, the traditional parade from Queen's Park to the grounds of the Canadian National Exhibition went ahead, but groups of Bolsheviks among those out of work attempted to hijack the event, and the banners of those marching were notably pointed. Sample quote, 1914 Hunt the Hun, 1921, Hunt the Job. In Buffalo, however, there was a slightly larger turnout than previous years, with the women of the Waitresses Union decked out in special costumes. There was just the one float from the Barbers Union, with a customer atop it in the chair getting his shave and a haircut 
uh, but without having to pay the two bits. In Chicago, three days of Labor Day observances at White Sox Park concluded with an address by the former Democrat presidential candidate William Jennings Bryan. Mr. Bryan urged American organized labor to follow the example of their German brethren, who had become vitally important supporters of the fledgling German Republic. This new labor-friendly republic, said Mr. Bryan, was one of the most significant developments in recent world history. With all due respect to William Jennings Bryan and his sparkling oratory, many attendees at White Sox Park were there principally to see the films of the so-called fight of the century between the Manasseh mauler Jack Dempsey and the orchid man Jacques Carpentier, but Fire Chief Fitzmaurice refused to allow the films to be shown. Others were there for the paddle wheel games for which Mayor Thompson declined to issue a permit. Both the mayor and the chief were vigorously denounced by Labour leaders. I wonder if you still care for me. Well, one clue is if he celebrates Labor Day by shooting you from a passing automobile. In Illinois, two ladies threatened by prospective suitors have been shot and badly wounded outside their small bungalow in Prairie Road, Evanston, by guns fired from a black, high-powered automobile that sped past. Three men the young ladies had asked to protect them are also wounded. The women, two former Chicago school teachers, did return fire. The reports of a Labor Day race riot in Gretna, a suburb of New Orleans, following clashes between whites and blacks at a Negro ball game. One Negro is reported dead and the sheriff of Jefferson Parish has dispatched deputies to Gretna with instructions to shoot to kill. In Ormsby, Minnesota, a family of seven is dead. The mother and five children, apparently the victims of a Labor Day mass murder by the father, Mr. Frank Klokov. Mr. Klokov recently resigned for reasons no one knows as cashier of the farmer's state 
bank in Ormsby. In sports news, America's tennis players have been hard at work this Labor Day in the 16th International Lawn Tennis Challenge. The United States defeated Japan 5 to nothing in the challenge round with Bill Tilden triumphing in the final match over Zenzu Shimizu six games to one. By the sea, by the sea, by the beautiful sea, you and I, you and I, oh how happy we'll be when each wave comes a rolling in. We will duck or swim, and we'll float this fool around the water, over and under. R is rich. My is rich. So now what do we care? I love to be beside your side. Beside the sea. Beside the seaside. By the beautiful sea. The eye-catching bathing beauties that add so much to America's beaches are not yet unionized, but one at least is demanding her rights. At Atlantic City, Miss Louise Rosine was arrested for showing her kneecaps on the beach. She responded by slugging the cop with an impressive right uppercut and is now pending her court appearance in the city lockup, where she is showing rather more than her kneecaps. Sometimes Miss Rosine wears her bathing suit with its legs rolled up very far. Sometimes she discards it, and the blushing warden, Gus Baker, hastily proffers a blanket. And sometimes when the holding cell heats up, she discards the blanket and wears only a fiercely determined expression. Miss Rosine is from California and is demanding that New Jersey adopt the same laws on beachwear as her home state. She claims to have forgotten the name of her hotel in Atlantic City and so cannot send for clothes. Canadian and American officials are hard at work this Labor Day putting the final touches to the so-called peace arch at the westernmost point of the Canada-US border between the communities of Surrey, British Columbia and Blaine, Washington. The peace arch commemorates a hundred years of peace between Canada and the United States since the Treaty of Ghent came into effect in 1815 and brought a formal end to the War of 1812. The commemoration was the idea of Samuel Hill, president of the Pacific Highway Association, but was postponed by the recent World War. One advantage of that delay was that the Peace Arch, designed free of charge by H.W. Corbett of London, England, is now one of the first earthquake-resistant structures to be built in North America. The Pacific Highway is already heavy with automobiles heading for the neutral zone 600 yards either side of the border. A Canadian girl, Miss Margaret Tremor of New Westminster, will present a Union Jack to the US delegation, while an American young lady, Miss Gretchen Snow of Blaine, will present a Stars and Stripes to the Canadian delegation. These will be unfurled simultaneously on either side of the arch. The inscription in the stone on the Canadian side reads, Brethren dwelling together in unity. On the American side are the words, Children of a common mother. And that's the way of the world. Labor Day, 1921. A hundred years from today A hundred years from today And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week. 
There aren't many songs about labour. That's to say, not just about work, a job, but a song you can feel the sweat and ache in. You can find plenty of work in 9 to 5, what a way to make a living type numbers, but not a lot in which you can feel the writer putting other folks' muscle into it. I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine. I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine. I loaded 16 tons, a number nine coal, and the straw boss said, Well, to bless my soul, you load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. A sweat dripping backbreaker of a song that America. At the height of the so-called white bread, picket fence, squeaky clean Eisenhower era was cheerily singing along with. It was huge in its day, in a way that the fragmented and shriveled Hot 100 of today can barely imagine. Tennessee Ernie Ford's version was released on October 17th, 1955. Nine days later, it had sold 400,000 copies. By November 10th, it had sold another 600,000 to become the fastest-selling million-seller in pop history, a record it retains to this day. By December 15th, it had racked up 2 million, and as 1955 turned to 56, it was number one for seven weeks before being displaced by Dean Martin's Memories Are Made of This. Who'd have thought there was so much gravy in a sing-along about the unrelenting, grinding misery of coal mining? You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. When something's that big a hit, it's easy to be dismissive, but in fact it's very deftly done. There's a whole world captured in that line about owing your soul to the company store. In many mining communities, workers lived in company-owned housing, the cost of which was docked from their wages, and what was left was paid in scrip. That's to say, company-issued tokens or vouchers that could only be redeemed for goods at the company store. To the unions who fought and eventually defeated the system, it was a form of bondage in which it was impossible for workers to amass any cash savings. There was no future except the next paycheck to be spent on next week's overpriced necessities at that company store. Against that, it should be said that for most miners, if they needed a bed or a dining table or uh, some such expensive item, uh, the only credit available was script credit, uh, which admittedly used to profligately could easily leave you owing your soul to the company stole in the way one now does to the credit card companies. Whatever the reality, the lines are brilliantly evocative shorthand of what in mid-20th century was still an instantly recognisable way of life. Written almost a decade before Tennessee Ernie Ford struck gold with it, 16 Tons was the work of Merle Travis. You load 16 tons, and what do you get? You get another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. He was a country singer. 
and in the 40s found himself facing what would be a common predicament in a music industry coming to value authenticity, so-called, over Tin Pan Alley professionalism. Uh, In the wake of the success of Burl Ives, of all people, Travis had been asked by Capitol Records to make an album of folk songs. But as he told them, uh, Ives has already sung every folk song. There weren't any left. Unfazed, Capitol's Cliffy Stone told Travis that in that case he should just write his own folk songs, but to go ahead and do it quickly because they wanted to go into the studio the next day. So on one night in August 1946, Merle Travis sat down and wrote three folk songs about Muhlenberg County, Kentucky, where his father had worked in the mines. And one of those songs was this. Now some people say a man's made out of mud, but a poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood, skin and bones, a mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Merle Travis had grown up among coal miners. His father played the banjo Merle took to the guitar. Two other miners, uh, Mose Rager and Ike Everly, father of the eponymous brothers Don and Phil. Uh, Mose Rager and Ike Everly helped Merle improve his technique, teaching him how to use his thumb for the bass strings. By 1935, he was playing with the Tennessee Tomcats, uh, then the Georgia Wildcats, And pretty soon he figured, as few had up to that point, that the guitar could be a lead instrument. He landed that Capitol Records contract and scored big with Divorce Me COD and So Round, So Firm, So Fully Packed. Uh, Travis had a facility for big memorable hooks and so asked to hustle up a handful of folk songs overnight. He figured, why not? He said he remembered a letter his brother had sent him during the war about the death of the great reporter Ernie Pyle in the Pacific. And in the course of his musings, John Travis had sighed, It's like working in the coal mines, another day older and deeper in debt. Merle recalled, too, his father's weary fatalistic shrug when asked how things were going. I can't afford to die. I owe my soul to the company store. Put those two lines together and you've got half the song. But there's another story told about the birth of 16 tons that it's nothing to do with Merle Travis or John Travis or Pa Travis. If you'd been around WKIZ in Hazard, Kentucky in the early 60s, you'd have run into a fellow called George Davis who told folks that he'd written the song and that Travis had changed a couple of lines and called it his. According to whom he was telling and when, uh, Mr. Davis's song was originally called either 21 tons or 9 to 10 tons. The second is ridiculous. You can't get away with a ballpark figure. You need a precise, explicit number to give you the sense of a back-breaking target racked up painfully pound by pound. As for 21 tons, that sounds more like the British singer Max Bygrave's gleeful parody, 17 tons. Some people say your woman's made of sugar so sweet, but my wife's made out of muscle and meat, muscle and meat. 
skin and fat like a tubeless tire. She never goes flat, she weighs 17 tons. And what do I get? Another food bill, and deeper in debt. Don't invite me out, brother. I can't go. I owe my soul to the grocery store. We met last summer at a seaside resort There were girls much thinner but she was a sport I went to the beach with this hefty maid I didn't get sunburned, I stayed in her shade Seventeen times There were a lot of those about at the time Spike Jones did 16 tacos uh, As for George Davis's claim to have written it In November 1966, someone at WKIZ in Kentucky recorded the so-called original. Uh, obviously, decades after Davis quote-unquote composed it, so it doesn't prove anything one way or another, uh, but it does come over as a bad cover version by someone not fully on top of the lyrics. I loaded 16 tons to try to get ahead It got deeper and deeper in debt instead well, they got what I made and they wanted some more And now I owe my soul at the company store That's certainly inferior to Mel Travis's version. Does that mean it must be the original? Written as Davis claimed back in the 30s and merely buffed a little in 1946? There's no supporting evidence for the aggrieved man's claim, although uh, there is a long tradition of rough and ready, fragmentary vernacular work songs eventually being neatened and organised into a finished version by professional songwriters. Or it could be that, as all hit-making composers and lyricists well know, failure is an orphan, but success has a hundred fathers, and a successful song, a hundred paternity suits. Uh, but there's something a little too pat, uh, I think, in a song about getting ripped off by the mining company, itself getting ripped off by the record company. Either way, uh, in this case, success was a long time a-coming for the song, until one day in 1955, with nary a thought, Tennessee Ernie Ford sang it on his daily NBC daytime show. He'd heard it when he'd worked with Merle Travis on Cliffy Stone's Hometown Jamboree, and he'd always liked it. And within five days of his casual exhumation of the song, NBC had received... 1,200 letters from viewers demanding to know what it was and where they could get it. Uh, so a few weeks later, Tennessee Ernie sang it again live at the Indiana State Fair and 30,000 fairgoers roared their approval. What with the Daily TV show, Ford's record career had suffered from lack of attention. Uh, in September that year, Capital sent him a formal letter warning him of a breach of contract suit unless he cut two sides for an instant single. So he hurried into the studio and did a lively country blues for the A-side, You Don't Have to Be a Baby to Cry, and more or less as a filler track, offered 16 tons for the B-side. Who knows what makes a hit? To set the tempo for his six-piece band, Ford, as he often did, began snapping his fingers. And the producer, Lee Gillette, buzzed through from the control room. Leave that in! So they did. If you see me coming, better step aside. A lot of men didn't, a lot of men died. One fist of iron, 
the other of steel If the right one don't get you, then the left one will You load 16 ton, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store. And maybe it was the finger snaps or Ford's voice or the plaintive instrumental echo of the final line after every chorus. Or maybe it was the combination. But for whatever reason, it's one of those occasions where the record transforms the song. An ordinary pseudo-folk verse and chorus number had been enlarged into something big, bold and emblematic. His big low growl is just right. Man enough to sound like a guy tough enough to work in a mine and thereby to underline the sense of diminishment of a big man rendered small by his economic circumstance. Merle Travis certainly understood. In later years, he would always end the song this way. I owe my soul to Tennessee Ernie Ford. But Ernie owed Merle too. Here they are together, two decades after the former made the latter's song one for the ages. Hey, y'all can snap with me. Come on. Everybody snap. Yeah. You snapping, Grandpa? Uh, not like I used to. <laughs> <laughs> what am I life on that? I was born one morning, it was drizzling rain. Fighting and trouble, my middle name. Raised in the cane break by an old mama line. No high-toned woman make me walk the line. You load 16 tons, and what are you getting? Another day older. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store Merle, I like this last verse If you see me coming, better step aside A lot of men didn't, a lot of men died One fist of iron, the other of steel The right one don't get you, then the left one will You load 16 tons Father, you get another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul. Mmm, you could spread that on a Martha White biscuit. <laughs> Mark Stein's Last Call. There are two theories regarding the father of Labor Day in America, both according the title to a man named Maguire, both of which Maguires were sons of Irish immigrants. One Maguire was Matthew Maguire, Secretary of the Central Labor Union in New York and intimately involved 
with planning for the first Labor Day parade in that city in 1882. The other Maguire was the aforementioned P.J. Maguire, who was the first to propose a, quote, general holiday for the labouring classes. I incline more to the latter Maguire, the founder of the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners, but a man who eventually fell out with his union comrades and died a broken man in 1906, just four years after resigning as general secretary. He was 53, but work and booze and union activism and more booze had put decades on him. In his final speech to the Union Convention of 1902, he used a memorable phrase to explain his ill health. A man wears out like a piece of machinery. I think almost any American of 1902, whether factory worker or farmer, would have recognised the truth in that line. Today, the men who make our machinery live elsewhere, in China, in India, Indonesia. We do not think of them. And if we did, our sense of them would be hazy. They are no longer our friends and neighbours, but a distant, anonymous mass, the rhythms of whose lives, the customs and social habits are unknown and in their details unimaginable, except that somewhere among them, at least in China, are the child labour and slave labour that men like P.J. Maguire helped end in America. And really, our machinery no longer wears out, does it? We trade in one device for another because those faraway labourers in distant lands have added some delightful new trick to the contraption that we simply can't live without. In 2011, I wrote in my book, After America, quote, Once upon a time, millions of Americans worked on farms. Then, as agriculture declined, they moved into the factories. When manufacturing was outsourced, they settled into low-paying service jobs or better-paying cubicle jobs, so-called professional services, often deriving from the ever-swelling accounting and legal administration that now attends almost any activity in America. What comes next? Or more to the point, what if there is no next? After a life of labour, said P.J. Maguire, a man wears out like a piece of machinery. Conversely, in a world after labour, entire societies can rust up like last decade's forgotten smartphone. Stay safe. Stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media.
All rights reserved.